This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we hear the results of a man who learned the craft of writing mystery novels in prison. Writer Jack Boyle grew up in Chicago, Illinois. While working as a newspaper reporter in San Francisco, he became an opium addict and was drawn into crime and was jailed for writing bad checks. Later convicted of robbery, Boyle was serving a turn in San Quentin when he created the character of Boston Blackie. Now, Blackie was a jewel thief and safecracker in Boyle stories and became a detective in adaptations for films, radio, and television. Actor Chester Morris was the best-known Blackie, playing the character in 14 Columbia Pictures from 1941 through 1949, and in the 1944 NBC radio series, Boston Blackie is the role for which Morris is best remembered. Here's the story of the Manletter Bank case. <laughs> R-I-N-S-O, Soapy Rich Rinso presents Boston Blackie, starring Chester Morris. Hello? Is Mr. Manletter there? Why, no, I'm sorry, he's not. This is his secretary, Miss Rochelle. Can I help you? Yes, you can deliver a message for me. I've been trying to reach him all day. This is John Partridge, president of the Morton National Bank. Mr. Partridge? But, well, Arthur Borden is president of the Morton Bank, isn't he? Not since yesterday, he's not. Give this message to Mr. Manletter, please. Tell him that his notes to the bank were due and payable on Monday of this week, and we must have our money. But, Mr. Partridge, we, we showed our books to Mr. Borden only last week, and... He agreed to extend the notes until our accounts receivable came in. Our business is in fine shape, Mr. Partridge. Our books prove it. Please tell Mr. Manletter that we'll accept our money in the morning, Miss Rochelle. But it's $100,000. We can't possibly raise that money overnight. I'm sorry. That's Mr. Manletter's problem. Goodbye. $100,000. Hello, Jean. Mr. Manletter, the bank just called. There's a new president and they... And they want to foreclose on my notes. How did you know? Read this letter. I got it at the house this morning. Here, read it. If you want to know how to prevent the bank from foreclosing on your note, have your friend Boston Blackie visit a house at 50 Hunter Street at 7 o'clock this evening. Signed a friend. Mr. Manletter, what does that mean? I don't know. I can't see any connection between the bank and Blackie. But I do know I won't ask him to go to Hunter Street. Well, can we raise $100,000 for the notes overnight? Uh, I don't think so, but I'll try. Only there isn't much hope. Then you must call your friend Blackie. No, it can only mean trouble for Blackie. I don't know how or why, but it must be trouble for him if I'm being forced to ask him to go there. But Blackie thrives on trouble, Mr. Manletter. 
And it'll save your business. No, I won't call Blackie. I'm going out to try to raise the money. You'll hear from me later. All right, sir. Alice, will you call a number for me, please? Get me Boston Blackie. Get me Boston Blackie. Four words that the weak use to call their champion. You know, some expressions seem so natural and right, we use them all the time without even thinking, like ruby red and sky blue and so on. Well, what I get a particular kick out of is the fact that we've added a new one to the nation's vocabulary. Yes, I hear tell that nowadays you ladies say rinse white when you want to talk about really white clothes. Of course, there's a mighty good reason why rinse gets your clothes so white. Rinso's soapy-rich suds won't take no for an answer from dirt. They pitch right in in your tub or washer and go to town. Yes, Rinso gets out more dirt. And that's why you ladies are able to turn out those beautiful Rinso white, Rinso bright washes. So next wash day, whistle for the kind of wash you're proud to hang on your line. Like this. And remember, it stands for Rinso white. Now... Meet Chester Morris as Boston Blackie. Uh, tell me, Blackie, which one of these girls do you like best? Uh, come on, take a look at their pictures. Come on, will you? <laughs> All right, Shorty. I'll judge your personal beauty contest for you. Now, this blonde here... Yeah. Hold it, Shorty. I'll get the phone. Hello? Blackie? Yes. Blackie, this is Jean. I had to call you. Mr. Manletter's in terrible trouble. Hey, come on, will you, Blackie? Come on, get off that phone. I gotta know about this redhead. Lay off, Shorty. Well, what is it, Jean? What's the matter with Arthur? The bank called an hour ago. I've been trying since then to reach you. They're going to take over the business if Arthur doesn't redeem his notes for $100,000 by tomorrow morning. Well, they, they, they can't do that, Jean. Yes, they can. The notes are overdue. Hey, boss, what about this brunette? Now, come on, come on, will you? Quiet. Uh, not you, Jean. Uh, look, honey, I haven't anywhere near 100000 and I wouldn't know where to go to get it by tomorrow morning. I didn't expect you would, Blackie, but Mr. Manletter received a message saying that if you come to 50 Hunter Street at, 12, at 7 o'clock tonight, the notes will be renewed. If I go to 50 Hunter Street? Well, what does that mean? I don't know, Blackie. But if I show up, they'll renew? That's what the note says. Mr. Manletter knew you'd be in some kind of danger if you went, and he wouldn't ask you. Oh, don't worry, chick. You'll hear from me. Bye. So you finally got done. Now, come on, help me. Look at it. See, I got 50 pictures here. Pick out the one I should pin up on my I wall. I can't huh? do anything about your pin-up problem now, Shorty. Oh. I've got something at 50 Hunter Street that I've got to pin down. <laughs> Hey, what is this? Sounds like a record. Hey, you behind that desk. You in the mask. What is this? Come on, talk. First of all, Boston Blackie, don't try anything foolish. There's one of my men behind you with a gun. Now that you've turned around to see, <laughs> let me tell you that you are listening to this recording which I made because I don't want you to know what my voice sounds like in person. A record, huh? Well, personally, I prefer Harry James. Blackie, I want you to listen carefully to what follows. Have you anything to say? Sure I have. I hope you're... Oh. Okay, boss. Take the record off. He's out cold. I uh, hope I didn't hit him too hard, boss. There's no sense killing him. 
The law is going to do that for us very soon. Gee, Blackie, where you been? I've been having pops. Well, I hope they look like their mother. Well, I'm back, Shorty, only I'm not the same guy. You should have had your head examined for going down to that Hunter Street joint. Yes, I, I had it cracked. That's worse. Take a look at this, Shorty. A bullet hole? Yeah. In your coat pocket. Who'd you shoot, Blackie? I didn't shoot anybody, Shorty. Somebody slugged me, and when I woke up, my gun was gone, and this hole was in my pocket. I must have been out for hours. It's, uh, it's almost 11 o'clock. I called Jean, and she told me the bank renewed man letters notes the minute I showed up at the Hunter Street place. Somebody sure took an awful crack at you, hey, Blackie? Yeah, it's more than that, Shorty. Only how much more and exactly what, I don't know. Uh, get my robe, will you please? Yeah, yeah, sure, boss. Uh, give me your coat and I'll hang it over this here chair. Well, here it is. Blackie, uh, what do you make of this business this afternoon? Uh, I don't make it. It's got me stumped. Yeah, me too. Well, here's your robe. Thanks. I think I'll lie down and relax for half an hour. Uh, would you mind fixing me some coffee, oh, Shorty? Sure, sure. Have it free in just a minute, boss. Thanks. Hello, Blackie. Glad to see me? Well, Inspector Faraday, of course I'm glad to see you. <laughs> Which goes to prove how easy I am to please. Ha <laughs> ha, very funny. Well, Blackie, I think you overdid it this afternoon. Well, my head sure feels like I did. That isn't what I mean. Did you ever hear of a private detective named Fred Visual? That crooked Jamis? Yeah. Oh, sure, I've heard of him. And he's heard of me, too, Faraday. I got the guy's license suspended when he tried to blackmail me. Uh, well, a couple of friends of mine, you know, last year. That's the guy. He didn't like you, Blackie. You know, I'd feel a whole lot worse if you said Rita Hayworth didn't like me. You didn't like him either. I hate rats, Faraday. Come on, what's all this about? Nothing, only Visual was found shot to death an hour ago. What? I'm taking you in for his murder, Blackie. Now, let's get going. Now, look, Faraday, you've done ridiculous things every day of your life. <laughs> but right now, you're borrowing from next week. What makes you think I bumped off Visual? I don't think it, I know it. We've got your gun, and it's got your fingerprints on it. Oh. We found it near Visual's body. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't that a bullet hole in the pocket of this coat of yours on the chair? You fired from your pocket. Well, maybe I burned the hole with a cigarette. Uh, no cigarette ever burned a hole like that. Now, come on, let's get going, Blackie. Get dressed and hurry up. Take off that robe, put a coat on. You're coming with me. Come on, take that robe off. All right, all right. Pretty robe, isn't it? Too bad you won't be allowed to wear it in jail. You like this robe, Inspector? Mm -hmm. Well, here, take a good look at Lovely. it. Lovely. Take a good look at it. Right over your head. <laughs> shorty, shorty. Yeah, yeah, I'm right here, boss. I was waiting for a signal for him before I cocked Well, him. help me tie him up, Shorty. We'll use the cord from the rope. Now, quiet, Inspector, quiet. Don't you know it's impolite to talk with your mouth full? Mm -hmm. You'll be tied up like a chicken in just a little minute now. Uh, well, I know what the score is now, Shorty. Somebody's fixed it to look like I knocked off Fred Visual. Yeah, I heard. Ain't a very pretty picture, is it, boss? I'm not worried about the picture, Shorty. I'm worried about the frame. <laughs> Who's there? Let me in, Jean. Hurry. It's Blackie. Blackie? Oh, thanks. Hi. I'm sorry about coming to your apartment at this hour, Jean, but I couldn't reach you on the telephone. Well, they closed the downstairs switchboard at midnight. Oh. What is it, Blackie? What's wrong? I need information, Jean. I need all you know or can remember. There's some connection between a private detective named Fred Viswell and somebody at the Morton National Bank. Now... Who was it that spoke to you on the telephone? The new president. Oh. His name is John Partridge. Well, that's the man I'm going to see. Faraday's on my trail again, Jean, and I've got to clear myself. Oh, you'll never be able to get into the bank to see Partridge, especially if Faraday has a dragnet out for you. As soon as you show up, they'll throw you in jail. Oh, don't worry. I'll figure out a way to get in to see him. But if I don't get anywhere with Partridge, I'm a dead duck. <laughs> 
Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Parsons. Good morning. Oh, I left your mail on your desk, Mr. Parsons. Thank you. I'll be in my office if anyone wants me. Don't open your mouth, Partridge, or this gun will shut it permanently. Why? What? What do you want? Aren't you one of the special police that protects the bank? Oh, well, don't let this uniform fool you. I wore it just to get in here and keep away from your desk. You know, I'm allergic to the sudden pushing of buttons. Ah, that's better. Now, do you know who I am? No. I'm Boston Blackie. That doesn't mean a thing to me. Oh, I think it does. You called Arthur Manletter's office and told him the bank wouldn't renew his notes. But he received a letter saying that if I were to go to 50 Hunter Street, the bank would renew. Maybe you know what you're talking about, but I don't. You've got to be the man behind a pretty shrewd frame-up, Partridge. Unless you're acting on somebody's instructions. Now, which is it? You know that if I raised my voice, you'd be shot dead by the bank guards before you could go through the front door? Well, I'd have company, Partridge. Believe me, you. Inspector Faraday thinks I killed a man. They don't hang you twice for double killing. Why was I framed for the murder of Fred Visible? I don't know any Fred Visible, and I don't know anything about any telephone call that was supposed to be made by me to Arthur Manletter. No, you don't, huh? How about the renewal of Manletter's note? There never was any question about renewing Manletter's note. His credit is excellent. The note was renewed by me personally at 10 o'clock yesterday morning with a notary attesting to the time. And that was certainly long before my alleged phone call. Oh, you played it cozy, huh? You knew Manletter would call me, so you bluffed him. How long are you going to make me stand here? Can't you see there's nothing I know that can help you? Why don't you go? I will. I've got another stop to make. But the minute I leave this office, you'll call for help, of course. Of course. Oh, but you're not going to. You know, the only way you can do any calling, Partridge, is to talk in your sleep. Mr. Borden? Yes? I'm sorry to disturb you at your home. My name is Boston Blackie. How do you do, Mr. Blackie? I, uh, I came up here to see you, Mr. Borden, uh, about your bank. You mean about what used to be my bank? I'm sorry. Uh, who decided to replace you as president? The board of directors. Oh, and was it done suddenly? Yes, very. Uh-huh, and, uh, where did John Partridge come from? I don't know. He'd been on our board of directors only a short while. Oh. I'm an old man, Blackie. The loss of my bank was a blow to me. Everything came so suddenly, I haven't gotten used to not being there anymore. Will you forgive me if I'd rather not talk about it? Oh, I understand, Mr. Borden. I, I'm going to try to get your bank back for you, but I need some help. Now, here's an address where I can be reached. Oh, you must have some loyal employee at the bank you can depend on, and would you call him and get him to find out something about Partridge? And if you get any information, send me a message. And uh, send that ring you're wearing with it so I know it's from you. I'll send you a message if I get it. But with just a paper clip on it, I haven't been able to get this ring off in years. The paper clip will identify my messenger if I hear anything. Good. Give me a little help. I'll turn a murder over to Inspector Faraday, get rid of the charge against myself, and give you a bank right in your side pocket. <laughs> We've got to stay down here at my waterfront hideout during the day, Shorty. Every cop in town is on our tail, and Faraday's sworn he won't sleep till he brings me in. It's okay with me, Blackie. Uh, and go ahead, it's your deal. You got me, let me see, you got me 60 to 17 and two boxes. Go ahead, <laughs> it's your deal. <laughs> you know one thing about gin rummy, it sure passes the time away. Yeah, it passes my dough away, too. <laughs> okay, you two. Hoist him. 
Come on, Patsy. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming. Now, look, Lucky. Stand up and don't try no, no, nothing foolish. I, I know all about you and your trucks. Well, I wasn't exactly going to ask you to pick a card. Who are you? A guy who ain't going to be outsmarted by you. Oh? Tie the little guy up, Patsy. Yeah, yeah, I'll tie him up. Good, too. Don't talk. Tie. Why, I'm tying him. He ain't going to go nowhere for a while. Okay. Suppose we start moving, Blackie. You ready, Patsy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm ready, Mug. Well, of course, don't anybody ask me. You're ready, Blackie. But you don't know for what. Now, start moving. Oh, this is a ride, huh? Okay. One way? Oh, I wouldn't say that, Blackie. We're coming back. Patsy and me. But we got orders to get you. Orders to get me, huh? Dealing in the Blackie market? You'll strain an arm reaching for jokes like that, Blackie. I thought that was rather clever, isn't it? But you might as well know something. Yeah? We ain't taking you on any gang ride. We're turning you over to the cops. Yeah, I'll bet. A couple of hoods like you wouldn't go within two miles of headquarters. I guarantee Faraday's got charges hanging over both you guys. Maybe. Only he'll be so glad to see you, he won't be able to think straight. All right, let's get moving, Blackie. And remember, I'm the guy that's got the gun on you. Okay, Mug. But take my word for it. Someday you're going to beg me to forget that. Blackie, there's something natural about the way you look behind bars. They look good on you. Oh, thanks. You've got no idea how nice it is to see you sitting so sweetly in that cell. Now, Faraday, listen, I didn't knock off Fizzwell. No kidding. Of course not. And you didn't throw your bathrobe over my head and tie me up either, did you, Blackie? Well, yes, I did do that, Mm -hmm. Faraday. You know I did. (laughs) But I did it to help you. Oh, this is going to be good. Now, tell me how. Well, somebody knocked off Fred Fizzwell. Your job is to catch murderers, Faraday. I, I had to be free to help you, see? Blackie, you should have been a lawyer. Thanks. Only you're overlooking a slight something. Your gun. Your pretty little gun. With your fingerprints on it. And a slug from it in Viswell's head and the bullet hole in your coat pocket. Nobody else killed Viswell, Blackie. You've got no alibi. You hated the guy and your gun did the job. Looks like kind of a perfect job to me. This is a frame-up, Faraday. Now, you've got to do something you've never done before. Oh, what? Use your head. Look, you're in jail, Blackie, and you tell me to use my head. Don't you think this is a spot where you should use your... Well, it seems as though Inspector Faraday is about to realize a lifelong ambition and has finally found a charge against Boston Blackie that will stick. However, that remains to be seen, of course. You know, you ladies really have it all over the men, folks, when it comes to being sensible about clothes. Come summertime, for instance, you know that one of the tricks of keeping cool is to look cool. And what could look cooler, crisper, and prettier than those bright cotton washables you wear? It's important, though, to remember to keep them bright and crisp. And that's where our soapy rich Rinso comes in. No point in working your head off in summertime, boiling and scrubbing clothes. And you don't have to with Rinso. A short soaking in Rinso suds, often as little as ten minutes, is enough. Then a few quick finger rubs on extra soiled places, and your clothes are ready to rinse. And believe you me, you'll be mighty proud of how your wash looks, too. Your lovely colored washable cottons will stay fresh and bright, week after week, wash after wash. And your white clothes, well, it goes without saying, they'll be... <whistles> yes, Rinso White. So get Rinso next wash day for a Rinso White, Rinso Bright wash. <laughs> Now back to Boston Blackie, starring Chester Morris. Blackie is in jail. Inspector Faraday knows that it was Blackie's gun that killed Fred Viswell, and Blackie can't clear himself while he's in prison. Into the cell block where Blackie is being kept, 
walks a young lady. The policeman at the end of the corridor said I could come in and talk to all the other policemen in the whole jail, and you're the other policeman, so I thought I'd come over and talk to you. All right, miss. But about what? About the ball, of course. Everybody knows about the ball. What ball? The ball we're giving. But I'm selling tickets only to policemen. Well, now I've heard everything. Selling tickets to policemen for a civilian's ball. How much are they? A dollar. But the policeman at the end of the corridor said that if Look, I came up... Look, uh, here's a dollar and keep the ticket. Uh-huh. And the next policeman is right down past this row of cells. Go bother him, will you, please? Yes. And uh, don't tell me that bag you're carrying is full of tickets. There aren't that many policemen. Oh, you're so silly. Of course not. I always carry a bag. It makes me look as if I'm always about ready to go someplace. Well, uh, you can go right now. I'll unlock the door. You can walk down the corridor till you find another cop at the end of it. Uh, his name's Murphy. Isn't every policeman? Oh, I don't know. All right, go. Go on, miss. Right down the corridor. Don't mind them mugs in the cells. Blackie. Jean, what are you doing here? This isn't visiting day. Blackie, listen. I've got to keep walking when the guard looks this way. Oh, don't be silly. Come in. The door's open. The cell door's open? Sure. Try it. It is. Blackie, how did you do that? She closed the door. You know, I could open the cell door all right, Jean. That was a cinch. But I haven't figured out yet how to get past the guards at both ends of the guard. Oh, stop figuring it, Blackie. Here, look at this bag I brought. It's an outfit that matches the one I'm wearing, only it's a couple of sizes larger. Put it on, quick. What, and leave you in the cell? Oh, nothing doing, honey. I'll go out the door I came in, Blackie, and you go out the other one. Only hurry. The guard might get curious. Okay. Well, it won't take me a second. I'll first roll my trousers up, and then on with the dress. Oh, oh, you brought a wig, too, huh? You think of everything. Can, uh, can I get into these shoes? Sure, you can, and hurry, Blackie. Yeah. Don't forget your hat. Say, it's a cute one. Mm-hmm. All right, zip me up, will you? And all set. <laughs> there. Oh. I just walk out, Blackie, and tell a cop at the end of the corridor. His name's Murphy. Tell him he ran out of tickets. Uh, can you talk like a girl? Who, me? Of course I can. Oh, you better not talk. Bye, Blackie, <laughs> and luck. You'll be back in my apartment. Oh, thanks, Jean. You're wonderful. Mm, see you later, Blackie. You look awful cute in that outfit. Watch out for the wolves. Oh, not me. For once, I want to be on the receiving end of a... This is the house, Shorty. 50 Hunter Street. I don't know what I'd expect to find here, but let's go in. Why, boss? Well, maybe I can pick up something inside that'll give me a clue to that masked man. Uh, you see any lights? No. Nope, there ain't anybody. Okay, now don't hit your flashlight till we close the street door. Oh, what kind of a lock is this? I don't know. But if you're working on it, it's an easy lock. I'll guarantee that. No, Shorty, it's an open lock. Come on in. Shh, quiet. Hit your flash, Shorty. Right. Yeah, this is the room where I got conked. The masked guy sat right over there facing me with his hands folded on that table, and he... Shorty. What? What happened? I know now who the masked guy was, Shorty. Yeah? I'm going to straighten out this whole mess. Wait till I look up a number in this phone book. Let's see. Who are you calling, Blackie? I'm calling the murderer of Fred Viswell. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, Here it is. Well, now let's hope I sound like the mug. Hey, boss, this is a mug. Come right down to Hunter Street house. I got Blackie here. He's Hoyt. Oh, you want to talk to him? Okay. Talk to the boss, Blackie, or you'll get it again. Here, take the phone. So you're the boss, eh? Well, what am I supposed to do? Applaud? Hey, give me that phone, Blackie. Okay, boss. Yeah. Yeah, that sure is Blackie, huh? Oh, you'll be right down? It worked, eh? Good. Yeah. What a swell. Okay, Shorty, now you beat it. I'm staying right here, and I'm handling this alone. 
But I have a job for you when you get outside. Okay, boss. It may decide who dies for the murder of Fred Biswell. And just between us, I'd rather it wasn't me. Mug, Mug, are you in here? Mug, turn on the light, it's dark. I can't see you. Turn on the light. Here's a light, Mr. Borden. Right in your face. Boston Blackie. That's right, Boston Blackie. <laughs> you had a very nice frame-up all fixed for me, but I think you're going down to explain it all to Inspector Faraday now. Do you? Well, I don't. So the phone call to me was a gag, eh? I might have known it was one of your tricks, Blackie, but I didn't. No harm done, though. I'll just leave. Oh, just like that, eh? Mm-hmm. Huh? And don't think you can threaten me, Blackie. As long as I'm alive, I'm a potential alibi for you. Only you and I know you didn't kill Fred Bearswell and that I did. And you've got to let me live in the hope that someday I'll confess. Mm, yes, yes, I guess maybe I do. Well, you're a pretty smart man, Borden. You'd have to be to have me in this kind of a jam. What did Biswell ever do to you? He thought he could outsmart me, the fool. Some private investors had him checking the books at the bank. Found that I'd taken quite a bit of money that didn't belong to me. And he thought he'd try a bit of blackmail... He didn't get very far. Pretty thorough, aren't you? I think so. How did you know I was the masked man, Blackie? Well, two ways, Borden. Yes? One was the fact that I gave you the address of my waterfront hideout, and later your hoods paid me a visit down there. You were the only one that had that address. The other was that ring you're wearing. Uh, you know, the one you told me you couldn't take off. When I came in tonight, I remembered the masked man was wearing that ring. You know, putting John Partridge in your place as president of the bank sounds like a wonderfully smart idea. It was. I was tired of working, and I can throw Partridge in jail any time I like for a little embezzlement job he did. So he must do as I say. And now, Boston Blackie, let's go visit Inspector Faraday. Well, no, Mr. Borden. I, I don't think I care to see the inspector tonight. No? Perhaps this gun will make you change your mind. I happen to know that Faraday has your gun... You're still under suspicion of murder, you know. And if you try to escape, Blackie, I'll think nothing of killing you in cold blood. You know, I believe you would, Borden. All right. All right, I'll go with you. I guess I'd rather be a live prisoner than a dead suspect. Here's Inspector Faraday's office, Blackie. Walk right in. Go on. Okay, if you say so, Borden. <laughs> Hello, Inspector. Say, look, don't you ever sleep? Hello, Blackie. I've been expecting you. You're a little late. Would you mind telling this gentleman in back of me to get rid of his gun, please, Inspector? He doesn't realize that it's impolite to point. His name is Arthur Borden. Okay, Mr. Borden, I'll take that gun. Certainly. Here you are. Well, looks like I've got a first-rate murder suspect right here in this room. <laughs> it certainly does, Inspector. <laughs> like to lock him up? In just a minute. In fact, I might as well do it very legal and proper. Arthur Borden, you're under arrest for the murder of Fred Viswell. What? Me? Why, I... David, I wish it was Blackie. Only it isn't. <laughs> We've got your confession in your own voice, right on a dictograph record. A dictograph planted in my Hunter Street house? Right. That's impossible. Nobody could have put a dictograph in there. You tell him, Blackie, you figured this thing out. Well, before you came into the Hunter Street house tonight, Mr. Borden, I dialed the inspector's private number on the telephone and left the receiver off the hook, you see. I had Shorty call him before and tell him to expect his private telephone to ring. All the while you were telling me how perfectly you would frame me, 
The inspector was listening on this end. Yeah, not only listening, but having the whole thing taken down on a record. <laughs> uh, say, Inspector, I did you a favor, didn't I, by turning up Visual's murderer? You did yourself a bigger favor, but what's on your mind? Well, I'll tell you, Inspector. Shorty told me you have Jean Rochelle booked here. You said it, Blackie. She helped you escape from jail. Well, maybe she did, but uh, if she did, I brought you in a murderer, so you certainly owe her a favor, too, right? Well, maybe. What do you expect me to do, let her go? Sure. You've held her long enough. Now it's my turn. You've heard about making mountains out of molehills, but here's how to make mountains of dishes go right down to nothing in a hurry. You put some rinse on your dishpan, and up go the suds. Plenty of thick suds from surprisingly little rinse And down goes that stack of dishes in practically no time. Yes, dishwashing is a mighty easy, simple job, with rinse helping out. China, silver, glassware, they're all shining brightly in a jiffy with Rinso's soapy-rich suds on the job. Why, even your pots and pans come clean easily when Rinso gets to work. Use Rinso, too, for all the soap and water jobs around the house. It's swell. Now a glimpse at next week's adventure of Boston Blackie. All right, Monahan. Give me a little more juice in that light. No. No, don't do that. I can't stand it. That's better. Now, listen, Shorty, you say you don't remember what happened. I, I don't. I keep telling you I don't. All right, maybe you don't remember. You were slugged. Now, we don't want to know anything except one thing. Now, think hard, Shorty. Who was the last person you saw or talked to before you were slugged? Now, that's all we want to know. I'm thinking, Inspector. Honest. I'm dizzy trying to think. I don't know. I just don't know. Hey, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, I remember now. The last person I talked to before I got conked was, uh, was Boston Blackie. <laughs> Be sure to listen in at this same time next week for another exciting adventure with Boston Blackie, starring Chester Morris with Richard Lane as Inspector Faraday. You can see Chester Morris as Boston Blackie at your favorite movie theater. Boston Blackie's latest Columbia picture is One Mysterious Night, soon to be released. Original music for the program was by Charles Cornell. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for the makers of Rinso and wishing you all a very pleasant good night. Stay tuned for Father Knows Best, next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Robert Young to star in Father Knows Best. And tonight's episode's called Hans Christian Andersen. Well, your father says so, and your father knows best. Yes, it's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons. Brought to you by Maxwell House. The coffee that's bought and enjoyed by more people than any other brand of coffee at any price. Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. was the night before Christmas when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Kathy, 
I'm sorry, Daddy. Oh, Kathy, did you drop another box of ornaments? Well, they slipped. They slipped, did they? Margaret, what's the matter with that child? I asked her to do a perfectly simple little <clears> thing. <throat> oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Please continue. Thank you. In Springfield, the streets were all covered with snow, and lights blinked a path for St. Nicholas below. Ye gods and little fishes, now what happened? You blew out a fuse, Dad. Oh, don't be ridiculous. How could I do a silly thing like that? Easy. What? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, I said you were putting too many lights on one circuit. Oh, you did? Well, go get a flashlight or a candle or something. How do you expect me to... <clears throat> oh, I'm awfully sorry. I assure you this wasn't intentional. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much. The Andersons, gathered as snug as could be, sat waiting for Father to finish the tree. When out in the hall there rose such a clatter... I'll get it. Hello. Oh, hello, Janie. No, we're just trimming the tree. Who is it, dear? It's only Janie, Mother. Well, tell her you call her tomorrow. And come back and hear where you belong. Or do I have to trim the whole tree by myself? I'll call you tomorrow, Janie. Hmm? Oh, it's my father. He won't let anybody else touch the tree, but if you aren't there to watch, he makes out like ten men. Nine dead and one dying. <laughs> okay, Janie. Easy breezy, you'll slide a mile. You may go ahead now. You'll never know how grateful I am. All right, boys. When out in the hall there arose such a clatter... Kathy, will you please leave the presence alone? Gee whiz. When out in the hall there arose such a clatter... Oh, well, what's the difference? What I say won't matter. Go ahead, Jim. There. I guess that does it. Well, how does it look? Oh, it's beautiful, dear. Really beautiful. Mm-hmm. The angel's crooked. Certainly is not. That's the straightest angel I've ever seen in my life. Okay, then the tree's crooked. <laughs> but doesn't anything ever satisfy you? I'm satisfied, but I thought you'd want to know. Something's crooked. Jim, dear, it's getting late. It took me three hours to trim that tree, and what thanks do I get? Something's crooked. <laughs> I think it looks wonderful, Daddy. Thank you, Kathy. It's certainly different, Father. Thank you, Betty. It still looks crooked to me. <laughs> Jim, it's awfully late. If you're going to tell the children their Christmas story, you'd better start. They'll be up until midnight, as it is. Well... Maybe they'd just as soon not hear the story this year. Oh, no, Daddy. Please. Betty? I'd like to hear it, Father. All right. But If the tree isn't crooked, why are all the bells cockeyed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 sure. I want to hear the story, Dad. Go right ahead. How does the tree look? Great, Dad. Straight as a string. All right. Now that we're all agreed that ours is the most magnificent tree in Springfield... In the whole world, Daddy. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But as long as we all agree that it's a pretty nice tree, let's sit down and I'll begin. Now, once upon a time, about a hundred years ago, there lived in the small Danish town of Odensa a man whose name, like ours, was Anderson. He was a tall man... Thin and gaunt, not too pleasing to the eye. But he was a friendly man, gentle and kind, 
and his heart held so much love that the children of Denmark took him for their own. One cold, brisk day in December, the day before Christmas, as a matter of fact, this gentleman plodded down the main street of Odense. The cobble street was covered with snow, and aside from their jingling bells, the sleighs were soundless as they moved swiftly along their way. In the doorways of the snow-capped buildings, peddlers called their wares. Candles for the Christmas tree, holly to deck a festive mantle with bright red berries and verdant leaves. Yule logs for a flaming fire. Anything your fancy might desire. Mrs. Soap, a sprig of Mrs. Soap for your door, my dear. Mrs. Soap, Mrs. Soap. Good afternoon, Fru Meisling, and how are you this lovely, clear day? Hello, Herr Anderson. How could I be? I grow old and weary, and my bones are full of aches and pains. Old? No one is old, Fru Meisling. As long as the heart is young and the spirit is gay, no one grows old. And what about the feet? <laughs> Look, Herr Anderson. Holes in my shoes. How can your spirit be gay when you must stand in the snow with holes in your shoes? That is easily fixed. Herr Bremer has the skill of a genius. In one minute at his cobbler's bench, he can make your shoes like new. Herr Bremer, that thief, that scoundrel. Do you know, Herr Anderson, I have heard that Herr Bremer uses cardboard instead of leather. Cardboard, mind you. Room, wisely, I'm surprised. You have been looking in the hobgoblin's mirror. Ah, Herr Anderson, you and your hobgoblins. Those are fairy tales for children, not old women. Fairy tales? You think that the stories I tell are not true? Room, wisely, I am shocked. Ask any child in Denmark, and he will tell you I speak nothing but the truth. About hobgoblins? Well, perhaps I exaggerate a little. But in my stories, people do not gossip. People do not spread rumors. No one says that Herr Bremer's leather is mostly cardboard, unless they have looked in the hobgoblin's mirror. But Herr Anderson, I have been told, how else does Herr Bremer grow rich? He works hard. He is frugal. And he has a good heart. The one who told me she has a good heart, too. Then it was she who looked in the hobgoblin's mirror. Through Meisling, this was an evil goblin, one of the very worst. For he was the demon himself. One day he was in a wonderful humor. For he had fashioned a mirror. A very peculiar mirror which would appeal only to a goblin of this very low order. You see, anything good or beautiful that was reflected in this mirror immediately shrank to almost nothing. But anything evil or ugly was instantly enlarged out of all proportions. That was very amusing, the demon thought. And then he had another idea, a truly evil idea. Whenever a good, kind thought passed through a person's mind, it was reflected in the mirror as a grin. And even the hobgoblins themselves had to chuckle at this artful invention. They scurried about with the mirror until there was not a country or a person in the whole world who had not appeared all twisted and misshapen in this demon's glass. And then... Then, through Risley, it happened. The hobgoblins decided to take their mirror up to heaven, too. They wanted to mock the very angels themselves. So they flew higher and higher and higher into the sky, closer and closer to the realm of angels. And 
higher they flew, the larger became the grin and the mirror. The thoughts of the angels, pure and kind as a thought can be, shook the mirror so that it plummeted to earth, where it was shattered into a hundred million pieces. And that was very sad, Fru Meisling, for some of these fragments, no larger than a grain of dust, still float about the world. Each of them carries with it just a tiny bit of the hobgoblin's power. Each little piece makes one see evil where there is good, ugliness where there is beauty. Fru Meisling, I think I see it now. In the corner of your eye, a tiny speck. Let me take it out. Yes, my dear, take it out. Please, take it out. <laughs> Fru Meisling, you are trembling. There's no need to be afraid. Oh, Herr Anderson, you and your stories, you make me forget. That is too bad. I wish only to make you remember. Herr Anderson, about her Bremer, I should not have spoken as I did. Will you forgive me? There, it's out, that evil piece of glass. You see, it's as easy as that. You are a very good man, Herr Anderson. Here, take this sprig of mistletoe. It will cost you nothing. I shall treasure it through Meisling to the end of my days. Ah, oh, go away before you charm the buttons off my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Fru Meisling. And a Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Herr Anderson, and God go with you. Mistletoe, a sprig of mistletoe for your door, my name. Well, mistletoe. I'll wager I cut a handsome figure with a sprig of mistletoe pinned to my coat. Very handsome indeed. I shall say to Jonas Collin, I need no advance, you skin flint of a publisher. See? Who but a wealthy man could afford mistletoe for his coat? That's just what I'll say. Ah, yeah. Ah, well. Come in. The door's unlocked. Good afternoon, Jonas. Am I late? Yes, you're late. Then when are you ever on time? Well, a sprig of mistletoe. Such affluence. Oh, it is nothing. Nothing at all. Poor Fru Meisling. She gives away more than she sells. I... Uh, yes. Uh, she's a very good woman. Jonas... Sit down, my friend, please. We must have a very long talk. Then you've read my new story. Yes, I've read them. Tell me, what am I going to do with you? That isn't important. What are you going to do with my story? What can I do with them? Nothing. Jonas, if only you could understand... Understand? Hans Christian Andersen, you drive a man beyond understanding. You write like an angel. Your words have wings, and you waste them. You throw them away on this dribble. Jonas, you're not being very kind. I'm being truthful. Hans, why do you do it? Why do you persist in this foolishness? Foolishness is a point of view, my friend. I am very happy with what I write. Good. Be happy. And be poor. With your talent, with your imagination, you could write the great Danish novel. A play which would pour money into your pockets. I am happier as I am, writing the things I feel I must write. But why, Hans? Tell me, why? Must there always be a reason? All right, you shall have a reason. I am in love with all the people of all the world. And I have a message for them. A message which I can best plant in the spring, when the earth is green and the world is very young. It is a simple message, Jonas, of love and faith. And it takes root swiftly in the hearts of children. That is why I write for them. That is my life. That I shall continue to do. 
Now you have your reason. Hans, you are a fool. I know. Do I get my advance? All right. But only because I am a fool, too. <laughs> Good. Then the world is not lost. If there is a rich fool for every poor fool, all will come out right in the end. <laughs> Goodbye, Jonas. And uh, thank you for your advice. And the advance. Oh, particularly the advance. A Merry Christmas to you, Jonas. Uh, perhaps if you were to smile just once, Prue Meisling might give you a sprig of mistletoe. Merry Christmas, Hans. God go with you. Oh, my poor friend. My poor foolish friend. He thinks of nothing but good for humanity. And life gives him so little in return. His heart is so full of kindness and love. And on Christmas Eve, he is the loneliest man in all the world. stories in a book. But they are in a book. I have it. I know, Kathy. You see, he didn't really mean it. He published the stories all the time. And he sold them in every country in the world. But if the man said he wouldn't... Kathy, stop asking so many questions and let Father finish. Gee whiz. <laughs> Go ahead, dear. All right. Well, after Hans Christian Anderson left the home of his publisher... He walked slowly through the streets of Odense. He walked for hours, looking at the bright candles burning in all the windows, at the holly wreaths hanging on every door. People nodded to him as he strolled by, smiled at him and wished him a Merry Christmas. And then, after he passed, they shook their heads sadly and sighed because of his loneliness. You see, they too thought of him as a lonely man, childless and desolate. And when he reached a narrow, crooked street on the edge of the city and climbed the long staircase that led to his room, it began to seem as if perhaps the people of Odense were right. It was a very simple room, bare as a room can be. There were no rugs on the floor, no pictures on the wall, but strangely, he didn't seem to mind. A tiny fir tree stood green and shimmering in a corner and a comfortable fire burned warm and bright in the fireplace. Hans Christian hummed a cheerful song as he bustled about the room. And then, moving slowly down the narrow street, he heard the carolers come. It's the season to be jolly. Oh, la, 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 la. Oh, little Shineth the everlasting light. 
Wonderful, my friends. A Merry Christmas, Hans Christian. And a Merry Christmas to you, to all of you. May God's blessings be on you to the end of your days. Thank you, Hans Christian, and God go with you. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. How can they say I am a lonely man? What man can be lonely with friends such as these? What man can be sad on a night such as this? On every side, goodwill and peace. In every heart, love and kindness. No. If ever I am sad, it is not on the eve of Christmas Day. Ah, finally they are here. Come in. Come in, my children. children, all my children have come home to see their father. And look at you, what wonderful, wonderful children you are. How you've grown. We've missed you, Father Hans. And I've missed you, Gerta. I've missed you all, my little tin soldier. I'm a big tin soldier, Father Hans. You will always be my little tin soldier. And the nightingale. Karen, with the little red shoes. Hello, Father Hans. And the Snow Queen. How are you, Father Hans? Look at him. How my ugly duckling has grown. <laughs> Father Hans. Big claws and little claws. Thumbeline. The shepherdess and the chimney sweep. All of my children are here. All of them. I am the happiest father in all of Denmark. Father Hans. From all of their storybooks they have come. From nursery shelves all over the world. Father Hans. What a merry Christmas this shall be. What a merry Christmas indeed. Father Hans. Tin soldier, why must you always interrupt? I have a question, Father Hans. A very serious question I must ask. So soon, tin soldier? I thought first my children would tell me of their adventures. Of the things they have accomplished. It has been a long time, you know. Oh, all right. But we must have discipline, Father Hans. They shall speak, but I shall be in command. First, Karen of the Red Shoes. Report to Father Hans. Well, I brought warmth to the children of the world, Father Hans. Good. I taught them the folly of greed and the comfort of repentance. I spread the gospel of love 
and the wisdom of faith. You did well, my child. You did very well. Be quiet, Dr. Lang. It is not your turn. Gerda, you are next. Report. Well, I walked with children in their dreams and brought them happiness. I taught them the beauty of devotion and the wisdom of perseverance. Perseverance. That's what I did. You did wonderfully, my daughter. Wonderfully well. Duckling, be quiet. It is still not your turn. Snow Queen, you may report, but be brief. I kissed a thousand lips, Father Hans, and turned a thousand hearts into lumps of ice. And Father Hans, I'm tired of being cruel and heartless. Why can't I be kind like the others? Because, my Snow Queen, you are vanity. You teach your own lesson. You do good in your own way. That is your fate. Duckling, for the last time I... Wait, wait, let him speak, Tin Soldier. He's so eager. Speak, my little duckling. I see. Well, you did very well. Very well indeed. I am proud of you. And now, Tin Soldier. Father Hans, I have a complaint. Why do I have to have only one leg? It is very inconvenient. Hmm. If I can spend all of my days in endless dancing, certainly you can stand around on one leg. Stand around? I fight a thousand battles every day. I am the most valiant soldier of them all. Valiant? Pooh. Being gobbled up by a fish? I suppose you call that valiant. Children, please. Please, we must not quarrel. Soon it will be midnight and you must return to your homes. But first, I must give you your Christmas gift. The most wonderful gift I can bestow. I give you all a new little sister. The Match Girl. Welcome, little sister. Well, oh, Match Girl. Father Hans. Yes, Goethe. Why doesn't she say something? Can't she talk? No, Gerda, I fear not. But she carries with her a wonderful gift for the world. Three matches, which can bring wisdom and comfort to all mankind. She strikes her first match, so. And to the eyes of man are revealed all the beauties of the earth. The whisper of wind in a leafy tree. A soft crown of light on an angry cloud. Birds soaring through a clear blue sky. The surf as it pounds on a winding shore. All of these and many more our match girl brings to the world. She strikes her second match. And in its light we find truth. Here is the wisdom of man and his conscience. Here is the hope of man and his sorrow. Here is the power of man to build a world of righteousness and justice. Here is peace for all mankind, if man will but accept it. Then, the third match, the most important match of all. For it brings love. Look carefully, my children, and see what it reveals. Love of a man for a woman, of a woman for a man. Love of a parent for a child. And the love which is taught to us by God, who is our Father. The love of man for one another. 
Look again and see how in this love there is no prejudice. How it holds no restrictive covenants of color or creed. See how it glows in the hearts of men, worshiping in the church of their faith, whichever it may be, standing as equals in the sight of God. These are the lessons our match girl would teach. Now it is midnight, my children. It is Christmas Day and there's work to be done. Now go back to your storybooks, to your countless shelves throughout the world. Teach the children of the world as I have taught you. Teach them beauty. Teach them truth. And teach them that which alone will bring them into the sight of God. Teach them love. Twelve o'clock? I didn't know it was that late. Well... Merry Christmas, everybody. Oh, Merry, Merry Christmas, Father. Ah, now, kids, up to bed. Dad. Yes, bud? The tree looks fine. Well, of course. I knew that all the time. Good night, Father, and thank you. You're welcome, Betty. Daddy, hmm? the duck was cute. <laughs> I think you're cute, too. Good night. Good night, Kathy, dear. Jim. Yes, Margaret? It's a wonderful story. A beautiful story. It makes me want to cry. Oh, I have a better idea. I'll take my first Christmas present. A kiss. Merry Christmas, Jim. Merry Christmas, my love. To you, to me, to every family in every country in all the world. A very Merry Christmas. And may God bless us all. Father Anderson's Christmas wish, the makers of Post Wheat Meal would like to add their greeting. In this holiday season, may Christmas bring the most in happiness to you and yours. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Join us again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best. Starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Barkey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. So until next Thursday night, for myself and for the makers of Maxwell House Coffee, let me wish you again a very merry, merry Christmas indeed, and the happiest of holiday seasons. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, we wrap up the week with Dimension X, followed by Phil Harris and Alice Fay. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.